Welcome to this episode of How I Did It. My guest today is Rich Gilmore, who began his career on the advice of a famous Australian businessman as a futures trader, but ultimately turned his attention to helping to solve some of the world's big problems by leading environmental organisations. He led his first organisation at the age of 31, and he's now the country director in Australia for the charity, The Nature Conservancy. Rich talks about how he and his team raised $55 million to secure the future of a vast tract of environmentally important land in the Murray-Darling Basin. It's quite a feat, and I hope you enjoy listening to Rich talk about it. Enjoy this episode. Hi, Rich. How are you? Well, thanks, David. Thanks for having me. You're very welcome. It's great to have you here. Um, I'm going to kick off this episode by just kind of looking back at the early days of your career. And from, from what I've read and talked to you about, you started life uh, on the Futures Exchange, but at some point you exchanged futures and ended up doing what you're doing now. So um, tell us a little bit more about that and why you made such a big change. Sure, I was very fortunate as a growing up and as a teenager in Queensland that I always knew what I wanted to do. Uh, I was going to be a stockbroker and I was going to make my first million dollars by the time I turned 21. Uh, and as it turns out, uh, my father at the time was working for uh, the Packer family in New South Wales running their polo operation. And when I told uh, big, the big fella, KP, about my aspirations, he managed to get me a, a job with uh, Ord Minute uh, in Sydney. Uh, and this is in 25 years ago now. Wow. And so I went into the office of Ord Minute and sat with the then CEO, Chris Gorman, in the boardroom. And KP must have been an important client because Chris had drawn up a big organisational chart. He had corporate finance over there, equities, mergers and acquisitions, a bullion probably, uh, and then futures. And he said, you know, described all of these areas and said, which of those areas do you think you'd like to go and work in? He said, I wouldn't recommend the futures exchange. It's good money now, but they're a bunch of yahoos uh, and, you know, not sure how much work they actually do. And I said, oh, gee, I like the sound of that. Uh, so anyway, I was parachuted in as a uh, just turned 17 uh, into the Futures Exchange where I worked for about seven years until the Futures Exchange closed in, in 1999. Uh, and at that stage, um, I thought what to do next. And being a futures trader, unlike being an accountant or a lawyer or something else, doesn't equip you to do any other job other than be a futures trader. There are virtually zero transferable skills. Unless you want to be a Yahoo. Unless you want to be a, a Yahoo, then it's a very good uh, background for that. Uh, so I went and got a job uh, weighing trucks on the paper mill Weybridge, uh, Amcor's paper mill, down in Botany. Only job I could glamorous. get at that time, very glamorous, turned up in my uh, pinstripe double-breasted suit, which was the style <laughs> of the time. Uh, and anyway, I, I literally was weighing trucks on the Weybridge and then I uh, you know, moved up through Amcor, through financial administration and then, and then began running the New South Wales uh, business development for Amcor in the recycling division. And when I was there, um, Amcor sent me as one of 10 people out of their uh, global workforce of must have been 20,000 or so at that stage to go on a, a volunteer expedition to Kenya. Uh, and actually the, it was about uh, volunteering on mangrove. Uh, restoration and conservation. And I had zero interest in the environment at this stage, uh, but a free trip to Africa sounded like a you know, pretty mm-hmm. good idea. Mm-hmm. So I went along and you know it was one of those literally life-changing experiences like an epiphany where you know, it wasn't so much the subject matter of, of mangroves and of community conservation, but it was the fact that there was these really capable, intelligent people 
who could have been doing any job in the world, you know, uh, and they decided to spend their time in the mud, in the mangroves, solving other people's problems. And I thought that is just a really inspiring way to spend one's time. So I came back and I uh, tossed in the job at Amcor, went and did an environmental degree at the University of New South Wales, and then got a job uh, at the organisation who'd sent me to um, Kenya. Earthwatch Institute was the charity that was running the, the Kenyan mangrove program. And so I got a job uh, there, and that must have been uh, 12 years ago now. And the rest is history, as they, as they say. Wow. So you, although you had no interest in the environment, you were recycling at Amcor, and you could say you were recycling money at the Futures Exchange. So you could say you spent your whole career. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. I mean, it was a very unglamorous, a very unglamorous um, uh, way to think about it. But my career up to this point has been a series of um, unrelated right turns, which in aggregate mm. make complete sense at the Nature Conservancy, mm. where we almost see ourselves as being in the business of conservation, we need to think about uh, conservation and nature like a business. Think about big scale, think about sustainability, think about financial resilience as well as environmental resilience. And all that background in the Futures Exchange and a big company like Amcor and at Earthwatch, which is doing science, all come together very nicely at the Nature Conservancy to help put together these big transactions that we're now starting to do. Hmm. And um, obviously you've your career trajectory shows that you've not just been um, good at what you do, but you've been very passionate about it because you've been committed to it. Um, but why, just getting back to, to very basic principles, why do you think other people, all of us, should consider uh, that the environment is so important? And I, and I say that now and people might say, oh, duh, of course, but there are plenty out there who, who might not spend a lot of time thinking about it, might not live in the kind of world that you or even myself live in where you encounter um, information about this, uh, field on quite a regular basis. So what, what's your take on it? Yeah, I think there's two ways to think about that and we often spend a lot of time talking about the intellectual reasons uh, for conserving nature and I'll touch on those as well but I think um, there's something about the joy of nature. If you think about, you know, close your eyes and think about your happiest memories as a child, I would almost guarantee that many of those, if not all of your happiest memories, have some component of spending time in nature with your family, with your friends at the beach, you know, on holidays, in the bush, all those things. And, and those places are, you know, increasingly under threat. We're losing those, those places, losing those memories. And more and more people live in cities. And so, you know, it's hard to connect people with, with nature. If you live in Sydney uh, or Melbourne, for example, think about how frequently you spend time on bare ground with bare feet. It's actually not that frequently. You know, you're in shoes at work and then you go home and, you know, you're commuting in your car and all those things. And so we really want, you know, there's that joy of nature, that reconnection with nature, and you don't have to go to the outback, you know, or the Great Barrier Reef, whatever, to enjoy nature. There is nature is all around us. Here in Sydney in Lane Cove National Park, all the parks in Melbourne, it's all around us. We want to protect it. Uh, and it's that love and joy of just being outside and being in nature. That's the kind of emotional reason to, intrinsic reason to um, protect nature. But there's also a really uh, fundamental sort of intellectual and economic reason to protect nature. And that is that the environment, nature, provides and sustains every single service that makes the economy thrive, makes the economy and society thrive. So if you think the economy exists wholly within society, and society exists wholly within the environment, um, we, we exist in this environment, and it provides all of the fresh water that we need, not just to, to drink, um, but that powers our industry. 
you know, you can't run a paper mill without, you know, abundant clean water. Um, you know, 80% of the, you know, water in the, in the world that is used goes to growing food and fibre. It's absolutely fundamental to that. Nature provides the air that we breathe. Um, and it sustains us, you know, not just as a society but as an economy. And so we need the services that nature provides. Pollination, you know, for food production. Carbon sequestration. All of these things that nature does are absolutely fundamental to our way of life. And we're at the point now where, you know, those uh, services and those assets, those values in nature are under more threat today than they've ever been. Yeah, so tell us a bit more about that, what's happening, you know, just as a, a you know, from a personal um, perspective over the break, the, sum, the summer and Christmas break, we just seem to, in Australia alone, been hearing more and more stories around extreme weather events and many other things that would give rise to concern around the environment. Um, uh, what, what's happening yeah, you're right that uh, there's been a lot of profile around the environment uh, in the last several months, you know, huge heat waves uh, in Queensland. I mean, I was reading about Cairns. Cairns had uh, never had a, do- a November day above 40 degrees mm. and then had something like eight in a row. Uh, and there are towns in Queensland that have had dozens of days in a row above 40 degrees. I mean, that, that is making those places nearly in- uninhabitable. Yeah. Um, so there's one. You've got these huge extreme weather events, which are totally consistent with the projections that scientists put out about what climate change would do uh, yep. to the environment. Conversely, over in the US, you've got these polar vortexes and incredible cold, which were sort of counterintuitively also predicted to be a function of what a, a changing climate and an, on average, warming planet. And then you would have seen lots of the media in the Murray-Darling Basin about the large loss of fish, uh, in the Menindi, so it's really starting to hit home to people who live in cities, you know, that these, that these things are real. Mm. I think since the failure of the climate change policy in 2009, the failure, failure of the CPRS and that cost Malcolm Turnbull his leadership of the Liberal Party at that time, we've almost been in a bit of a, a bit of a, an abeyance almost of awareness around climate change and the environment. But these extreme events, these extreme weather events, these extreme fish kills in New South Wales, they're really starting to bring it back to the fore of public attention. So what must we do? Because it feels like to me, we've taken it for granted, your earlier comments around um, the relationship we have with nature. And that's, you know, personal, social, economic, all sorts of different elements to that. But um, let's say we've taken it for granted now, we're now there's now this awakening um, that we can't do that. And, if, and if, if we did continue to do that, you know, it would be a catastrophic um, failure. What must we do? And I mean that question personally because um, obviously you could say different constituents could, in society could do very different things. Government could do one thing, mm. corporates, etc. But just as people, you know, what must we do? Um, I think one of the biggest things we can do, and I was having this conversation with a, with a colleague yesterday talking about, for example, a home water savings. Um, really important to, you know, uh, reduce the amount of water that you uh, use at home. But if you think about water scarcity and the big challenge of water globally, which is a massively emerging challenge, not just for the environment, but for national security, for humanitarian reasons, all of this water stress uh, globally is creating uh, a significant social risk, political and economic risk as well. So, of course, you know, think about, you know, your water uh, you know, use at home. But more importantly, think about what you're spending money on and using uh, water as an example there is a huge amount of water embedded in the products that we, that we buy. Mm. You know, if you were to buy one walnut, there's probably 30 litres of water that was used to go into the production of that walnut. Jeans, hamburgers, milk, all of these things consume huge natural resources. 
And so the one thing that I'd say to people, particularly uh, when they're thinking about the products that they're buying, think about the food that they're buying. Now, was that sustainably produced? Um, you know, is there, a, is there a way for that uh, product to be recycled? You know, the global food system is responsible for more carbon emissions than just about any other sector. Mm. By far, the biggest user of water globally. Mm. 80 plus percent of water is used to grow food and fibre. Uh, and by far, the biggest uh, driver of habitat loss. You know, the rainforest and other ecosystems globally under threat. The largest driver by far is clearing of land for agriculture. And so we really need to think about the things that we're buying and the inputs into that process and the loss of habitat that goes into those to make those products and make sensible decisions based on that. Thank you for that. Um, I'm going to come a little bit closer to the, um, the main topic for the conversation today. And I, I remember hearing the report on the radio not long ago um, about this um, historic deal that had been done. It, it concerned us well. Now, if you had said to me a couple of months prior that we might spend $55 million on a swamp, I'd say it's probably more important things to spend money <laughs> on. So we need to know a little bit about the Great Kumbung. And can you tell us about just the, what, what that is and, yes. and why it's so important? I agree. It does need a, a rebrand. Uh, the Great Kumbung Wetland or something might be more inspiring. Um, it's an amazing place. Um, it's the largest uh, wetland or, or swamp of its kind in the Murray Darling We can call it a swamp today. Okay. Call it a swamp for today, the Great Kumbang. It is a swamp. Uh, and it's the largest of its kind in the Murray Darling Basin, uh, which actually makes it the largest of its kind in Australia. And I heard in a separate conversation this morning that Murray mm. Darling um, supports a, a, a third of Australia, and that wasn't population, so presumably that would be a much greater proportion in terms of population given the eastern seaboard and what happens around that basin. So it's yes. massively important, right? Massively important. Uh, the basin uh, supports about a third of our agricultural production mm-hmm. uh, and most of the irrigated uh, production. Uh, and as you said, you know, the vast majority of the Australians live in the southeast corner uh, on the fringes of the Murray-Darling Basin. And, and it's, a, it's a significant area. It's a million square kilometres, mm-hmm. 30,000 wetlands. And what makes uh, projects like the Great Cumbung Swamp so important is of those 30,000 wetlands, most of them are on private property and most of them are on farms. And so if we're really going to protect these important places in the Murray-Darling Basin, we've got to be working with farmers to protect these assets on their properties. So the Cumbung has you know, 200 plant species and 130 bird species, and it's a really uniquely located at the confluence of the Lachlan and Murrumbidgee rivers. Uh, and so when the opportunity came along... Um, you know, we had no choice but to see, see what we could do. Yeah, and it's a, a symbiotic relationship, isn't it, the farmer and um, someone like yourself or an organisation like yours, in that whilst you talk about um, consumption and, and for agriculture and so on and, and um, how much water, for example, that uses, at the end of the day, we need we need to, we, we need the farmers, the farmers need the land. There is a... That's right. There is a... Um, there is that symbiotic um, nature of the, to the relationship, but it hasn't always seemed to be there in terms of how parties work together. That's right, especially in places uh, like the Murray-Darling Basin. Water is a sensitive issue at the best of times. Mm. Um, and I agree with you, David, we do need to be able to grow food and fibre. We want to be able to grow natural fibres like cotton and wool because we don't always want to rely on synthetic fibres that have high inputs to produce, mm. difficult to dispose of. So absolutely we want to... Mm. Um, you know, sustain fibre production, we just got to do it at the right time and in the right places. Um, and while, you know, the Great Kalmung is not one of the right places to grow those sort of crops, uh, and so that was one of the reasons to protect it. But 
let's do that in a way that supports support sustainable agriculture. We grow cotton where we can. We want to get away from this prevailing perception that agriculture and nature have to be in conflict. Mm. As you said, there actually should be a virtuous cycle, not a vicious one. But they have to be in balance, don't they? They do. They have to be in balance. Yeah. Uh, and we think about um, optimising financial returns rather than maximising them. And the difference is probably your yeah. investment horizon. You know, how yeah. long and your risk threshold and what sort of risks you care about. Mm. We care a lot about the you know, risk of uh, you know, ecosystem loss and what that means for the productivity of the landscapes that we're working in. Mm. You can't have a, uh, an orchard without pollinators, without bees and butterflies and other pollinators. So, you know, we need to optimise these profits, not just maximise them in the short term. All right, so um, you were presented uh, with a, a rare and significant opportunity, weren't you, um, not too, in the not-too-distant past. What was that opportunity? It was an interesting one. We had recently uh, taken over the management of a property next door uh, to the Great Kanban called Gaini Nimikaira. 87,000 hectares of uh, floodplain, really important for biodiversity and indigenous culture, uh, and by far the largest single land holding in the, in the river arena, in the sort of southern Murray-Darling Murray Basin. And when that uh, deal was announced, uh, the owner of um, uh, the Great Kumbung, Tim Roberts-Thompson, got in touch to say, you know, he's thinking about um, his investment priorities and, you know, would we consider acquiring the Great Kumbung? Yeah. And normally this sort of transaction, the way it would work would be the Nature Conservancy would identify a really important place, we'd go and approach the landholder, we'd put together a conservation plan and a fundraising plan, and then 18 months to two years later we might, you know, have a transaction. Uh, in this case, we had 12 weeks um, because it was going to be sold anyway and we were able to negotiate an exclusive period where we would have the opportunity to acquire it. And so we had to do all of the planning think about the future management and really importantly raise a $55 million capital stack mm. uh, to do this in 12 weeks for something that would normally take 18 months. And a, a, a capital stack sounds high at the best of times where it's $55 million high. That's a, that's a big task, right? Um, so what were, the, what were the challenges around that? Obviously time um, was very limited, but when you look at it in a broader context, when you, when you looked at that opportunity, what were the challenges that stood between you when you first learned about the opportunity and actually um, getting over the line? Certainly time uh, was a big one and a couple of other sort of unfamiliarity with impact investing as a concept uh, and nervousness around investing in the Murray-Darling Basin or supporting the Murray-Darling Basin. We, all we see is bad news about the Murray-Darling Basin and mm. so trying to convince people that this was not only a meaningful uh, and positive investment but a you know, meaningful and positive philanthropic gift for that portion mm -hmm. uh, of the capital stack. And, of course, you know, trying to compress um, 18 months' worth of due diligence uh, yeah. into 12 weeks. And so that's really important. We're a financially robust organisation, and one of the reasons that we are is because we're careful with our investments. Uh, fortunately, there was a lot of work being done on the Great Kumbang in the past with, with governments because it is such an important place. So we kind of knew what we were getting ourselves in for. Mm. Uh, so that helped a lot. Um, but just telling this story and making it compelling while, you know, you know, building the plane as we were flying it. Yeah. You know, we didn't actually know what the final capital stack or the final deal would look like until a few weeks before, you know, we had to, you know, pay the, pay the deposit. Yeah. So we're trying to do all these things in parallel, whereas normally best practice would say you do them uh, sequentially. And the, 
podcast series is how I did it. So the focus is on, so you've done something that stands out. How did you actually do that? I'm interested in um, um, some of the basics around what you did because whilst this is, you know, you could almost say unique transaction, um, there are also a lot of common denominators there um, and people are facing similar issues. So we have either an opportunity or a need often mm. to raise a lot of money. Um, there's usually a time horizon around that, which might not be as uh, long as you'd like it to be. Um, you need to mobilise your resources. You may have a start point that says, this is our area. We know a lot of work's been done and we know a lot about it, as you said, was the case with you. Um, but then you've actually got to go out and you've got to organise yourselves internally mm. and you've got to put a pitch together, a case for support, you've got to structure a deal, you've got to talk to people who've got very different interests. So those are all things that, that fundraisers, boards who are thinking about fundraising as well as management teams face on a daily basis. Um, I kind of want to dive in a little bit to what that looked like for you and how you dealt with those challenges. So first off, the whole thing really came as a surprise. Mm, it did, yeah. H- how did you respond Firstly, in the boardroom, and secondly, in the management team, and you can answer that any way you want, maybe two together or separately, but what what happened and how did you get it going? Yeah, and so the first, uh, we always think about as the sort of number one priority we're considering um, whether and how to go about um, something like this is what impact are we trying to achieve mm. with this project? It can't be just we want to do a deal. Mm-hmm. So what yep. is the big conservation outcome that we want to uh, deliver here? And there was two for this project. One was the protection of the high biodiversity values uh, of the property, and I'll talk a little bit more about that, how that works in the capital stack uh, shortly. Uh, and the second was really importantly a demonstration that agriculture and nature can thrive together. Mm. So we're really uh, clear on those two objectives and designing everything that we were doing around the structure and the capital stack and all of those, the conservation, to make sure we're meeting those two objectives. And then we uh, you know, look at the... Um, the big question then was really around the risk. As you said, $55 million is a lot of money to uh, you know, pull together in a transaction in not much time. There's some debt in there. Uh, and really thinking about what that means for the risk profile of the organisation locally and, and globally. Uh, and where we landed uh, was you know, we think that we can manage the financial risk. We're engaging a, uh, a fantastic agriculture partner called Tiverton Agriculture, uh, that some of those listening to the podcast might know, Nigel Sharp and Harry Youngman in, in Melbourne. So we thought we had a pretty good handle um, on the financials. And where we landed on the risk was the biggest risk is this transaction not proceeding. Uh, and then there is a devastating conservation outcome or environmental outcome right. in Which the lower Which is great outcome. because often people just default automatically to the organisation. Yes. Yeah, so the, we really considered the risk of doing nothing. Yeah. Which really takes it back to me, in my mind, to what I say ad nauseum to people, which is you've got to start with your mission. You've got to say, why are we here? Yes. So you, you, you are there as an organisation to do that kind of thing. Yes. Right? So you, that, yes. you've got to do it. Yeah, and our, and our board was you know, rigorously focused on that as well. You know, I remember one uh, uh, board member, a guy called Joe Gleedman from uh, Goldman Sachs, said, we trust Rich and the team to be able to use a calculator. Um, what happens if we don't do this? That should inform how much organisational risk we're prepared to take on. Mm. Uh, and that was really great because it gave us the organisational confidence to approach this, this deal with that, with that mindset yeah. from the highest levels of our governance. 
How did you approach funders? And I'm particularly interested, uh, not not to the exclusion of the others, but um, uh, the philanthropic aspects. Um, it's I, I, I want to pause before I say this, but it's almost harder for a lot of people in their minds to ask for money on a philanthropic basis than it is when it feels like um, there is some type of commercial benefit back the other way or there is some type of financial or other benefit yes. that accrues because you feel you're offering something and there's value in what yeah. you're offering. Um, how did you how did you kind of organise yourselves internally to approach those funders and then how did you actually approach them once you'd gone outside the walls of the organisation? Yes. A really good uh, question and good observation um, that... You know, we think that philanthropy should do only the things that only philanthropy can do, mm. if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So we didn't set out to raise $55 million uh, from philanthropy to buy the Great Cumber. Yeah. Uh, we set out to raise enough philanthropy to ensure that those dual objectives could be met, that we could set aside those parts of the property where we wanted to make sure that there was no future development yeah. and that would have a cost to the economic you know, future of the property, yeah. and that's the role of philanthropy. So the role of philanthropy is lower the cost of capital mm. so that we can run the property at a much more sustainable level mm-hmm. and, secondly, permanently protect those parts of the property to the highest value. Right. And so we went to... Uh, we, th- we thought, well, we need a leadership on this one. Mm. Again, 12 weeks to raise a significant amount of money. We need a cornerstone. Mm. Uh, and so we approached Ian Potter Foundation mm-hmm. in Melbourne um, and asked them to consider whether they would be that cornerstone. Yeah. Now, just before you go on and say that, because yes. this is important. So in terms of people thinking, right, how do we go out and raise, might be capital campaign, it might be some other major fundraising drive. There was a point internally where you said, the way we're going to organise ourselves is we're going to go out and find one cornerstone, um, let's call them an investor, even though it's philanthropic, because yes. really it's still an investment, isn't it? You made that decision, and then you identified someone who might or an organisation that might fit that description. I'm interested in a little bit more about how you did that and how you plan to leverage that cornerstone um, over and above just the dollars that you might get. Yeah, and that was um, a really important point as well, David. Um, for Ian Potter, our foundation, I'll come back to the first part of your question. It was really important that they gave a generous gift, which, which they did, but also we needed them uh, to lend their you know, very significant organisational gravitas mm-hmm. to the project yeah. and to help us, you know, make introductions to other other funders and other organisations uh, because the long-lived foundation, uh, you know, very successful at achieving its philanthropic goals uh, and we felt that having them in there would give a lot of confidence to other yeah. philanthropic yep. uh, donors. And so uh, we, um, you know, already knew the, the some of the people at the Ian Potter uh, Foundation um, but still, it was they were making you know an exceptional uh, gift um, at an exceptional time, mm-hmm. uh, and so you know we um, kind of said to them, we understand that this is outside, you know, what normal practice of of philanthropy, and we absolutely agree that uh, you know foundations, philanthropists should be strategic and prioritised and all of those things, and in this case, we we would invite you to be strategic and prioritised but make an exceptional leadership gift for an exceptional opportunity. Right. So that was so and you would have put some time into preparing that that was the message you went with presumably as well. That's right. Yeah. 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 And did you make it explicit to them that you were hoping that their voice, their authority, their their um, gravitas as you called it um, was going to be valuable to you and you hoped that you could 
um, you could you could leverage that yourselves. Or, uh, yeah, yes, or, we or did. And private conversations you have with others. Yeah, yes, we did. And and the uh, Potter Foundation was great about that. Yeah, uh, and you know lent their support uh, publicly. We were prepared to say publicly that they were supporting yeah. uh, the project. And, you know, even gave advice to some of the other funders who were thinking about making a gift yeah. and talking about, you know, honestly what their concerns were. And again, that was an explicit ask, was it, that you said we would like you to help to introduce us? Because that's not always done, is it? I know people, when I, when I say people, I mean fundraising organisations will do that. But some feel, um, look, it's just, we can't ask for any more and let's just keep it simple. Mm. So how, was that even a consideration um, that, that you... You know, you should or shouldn't ask for that, or did you just go? No, we were very clear from from day one that uh, this this is going to take a sort of a coalition yeah. uh, of partners, and that one of the great things uh, that the foundation could do without spending any more money uh, is to you know lend their voice. Yeah, uh, and you know a, a couple of the other prospective funders, um, you know, asked a lot of questions, and you know I think that um, the the funders who came in shared their concerns, what was worrying them yeah. about the project, you know, what, would, what were the plans for future management, you know, how are we going to measure the impact, I'm not sure mm-hmm. how this is going to work, you know, the, so it wasn't, you know, we invited them to have, you know, uh, very open discussions without us in the room, okay. uh, because then they can have a frank discussion about, you know, what's concerning them as well yeah. as what's exciting them yeah. about it, and then you're having a more authentic conversation about mm-hmm. the project, and mm-hmm. it doesn't feel like you're being sold something. And you're already, motivation is, you're already engaging very deeply with it so in terms of um uh from from your side in terms of bringing people along ultimately to get them to the stage where they're prepared to support you it's actually a really good way to do it because before you've made the commitment on their side you're already deeply immersed in the whole thing aren't you yeah that's right and and you know craig Connolly, who's the ceo of the ian potter foundation you know demonstrated great personal leadership on this as well, as well as Ian Potter demonstrating organisational leadership, because Craig had to put this up to his board and have the board agree. And, yeah. you know, that's not a reputationally risk-free thing to yeah. do with a significant um, uh, project and a strong like board this. there, strong and very experienced board. Very experienced board, you know, the, uh, you know, the envy of many mm-hmm. organisations nationally. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, you know, Craig had, uh, you know, personal and professional leadership there as well that he had to demonstrate in order to, you know, make this happen. Yeah. So what, what do you think, um, when, you, when you look back and you think we were successful, what do you think um, stands out in terms of your approach? Again, I'm trying to do this question on behalf of all the fundraisers who are out there struggling to raise money. Um, what do you, when you reflect back, what do you think you, you're most pleased you did? I think that we were really honest with the prospective investors and funders about not only the scale of the opportunity, um, but what we didn't know, right. the risks that we were taking, that this was honestly a, a significant uh, transaction, never been attempted before, you know, twice as big as the next biggest conservation purchase in Australia's history, um, and just being really open and honest mm. to say, we don't know if this is going to work. We don't even know whether we're going to be able to pull this off, but this is too important not to give it a go, and will you back us? And so one more question on that, um, if, you, if you feel comfortable answering it. So was your very first opening conversation where you, you, know, you make contact and you want to talk about something, was your very first conversation, we've got a fantastic, unique opportunity, and then you, once you've secured that appointment, you sit down and you, you say, look, to be honest, we don't know how it's going to work. 
or did you go straight from the very start so we've got an idea and was it a different conversation? I think in the very first conversations with the philanthropic funders um, specifically, uh, it was more the former. You know, we have mm. this incredible opportunity that we would like you to consider making a leadership gift in support of. Yeah. Right up front, we were asking you to support this project, not invite them to a general catch-up and then, you know, drop the idea <laughs> on that we want some money. Yeah. Uh, really explicit. And then say, you know, we, we understand that this is challenging. It's a lot of money. It's not much time. Uh, it's an unusual uh, approach, but it's really important uh, and we'd be really grateful f- for your support. Yeah. And, you know, we got pages and pages of questions uh, and we answered those with total honesty. Mm. Is this a risk? Mm. Yes, it is. And we're not quite sure how to manage that risk yet. Yeah. But this is what we're going to do to put in place to help mitigate, mitigate those sorts of risks. So this sort of level of sophistication for investors and, and philanthropists you have to be completely open and authentic yeah. um, in order to be credible. Oh, just, you took the word out of the mouth. I mean, presumably, and you've said it now, that would build an awful lot of credibility as you begin that dialogue, right? Rather yeah, than and trying to present, you know, everything's um, shiny. And yeah, and, and the same similar uh, story when we launched the Murray-Darling Basin Balanced Water Fund must be four years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, now we went to market with an offering of, you know, 7 to 9% total return. Um, knowing that we, you know, had some modelling that suggested it would be more lucrative than that, and it has. It's delivered more like 14 15% annualised return since then. But we wanted to manage expectations at the beginning and then outperform. It's much better than the other way around. Yes. Uh, I got that advice myself once after doing the opposite in my career for a while. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, I endorse that one. Um, I'm going to talk to you a little bit about the capital structure and, and impact investment, but one more question more on the... Um, more on the philanthropic altruistic side. I've, I've asked you about what you're glad you did, but I um, just want to give you a chance to say what else you learned um, more broadly about fundraising and engaging supporters. Anything else you want to say on that? Yeah, I think uh, it reinforced um, our, so my sort of intuitive understanding that a clear demonstration of impact and a tangible, measurable result are really the key uh, to being able to secure these sorts of gifts. Mm. Uh, and so the four cornerstone uh, philanthropists uh, in the Great Kumbang Project, the Yulgulbar uh, Foundation, so Bailey Myers Foundation, the Ian Potter Foundation, the Weiss Foundation uh, out of the US, and the Beeson Family Foundation um, uh, in Melbourne, uh, who are that sort of coalition of the willing I yeah. sort of talked about earlier to, to uh, lead on it, and we're hoping that you know more philanthropists will... Um, will come in. Um, oh, I've forgotten the question. Well, the question was, what else have you learned about oh, yeah, engaging supporters learned? and, and um, yeah. approaching them? Um, and so the four cornerstone philanthropists in the project are the Weiss Foundation in the US, Ian Potter Foundation, Yulgulbar Foundation, hmm. uh, and the Beeson Family Foundation uh, in Melbourne. Um, and I think it was that uh, not only that clear, tangible, measurable impact, but a specific place for a specific purpose was really motivating, right. I think, for a lot of people. And that can be challenging because we want to do lots of other things. We want to invest in policy and advocacy and all those things that are really important but have less visible outcomes. Uh, but in this case, you know, being able to articulate a very, very clear impact was, was the key. So I'm going to um, talk to you now a little bit um, about impact investment. You put together an interesting capital raising structure, the capital stack, um, but I just want to, in the interest of time, hone in on impact investment as a component of that stack. Tell us more about why you did it 
um, what, why you went down that route and why you believed it was so important. Um, and then I'll, I'll come back and ask you a couple of other questions, but if you can start with that. Yes. Um, well, the, the why uh, was twofold. Um, it would have been difficult to raise $55 million from philanthropy in that time, and we shouldn't. Mm-hmm. Uh, if, the, if a financial instrument can achieve the same outcome, then we should reserve philanthropy for other uses. Uh, and the other one was around that idea we talked about earlier about demonstrating that these are real financially uh, sustainable investments that deliver a market rate of return and deliver a conservation outcome as well. And that's why we thought that even if we could raise $55 million from philanthropy, we shouldn't. We should put some capital markets uh, for-profit investment in there to demonstrate that these things are real financially robust investments uh, that are you know, um, mainstream like any other. And I want to, um, I want your help. This is a loaded question. I'm leading the witness here. I shouldn't do that. But I, I, I do, if I'm honest, want your help to kind of swap away this issue, this belief that that impact investment is philanthropy in a suit. Mm. It's it's um, the ability to deliver market returns as well as the impact in the environment. In this case, that matters when you think about the credibility of impact investment to me. Yes. You've just said that you can deliver market returns, but a lot of people don't think you can and that you go into impact investment because it's a fancy form of philanthropy. Your thoughts? I, I completely agree uh, with you that these it's not philanthropy in a suit. Uh, it is another way uh, of having a, a social or conservation impact is how you uh, deploy your capital. That's a you know really important way of you know creating an impact. But that doesn't mean that it's philanthropy in disguise or that you're giving something up. Uh, you know, this has got a double-digit target rate of return. So does the water fund. Mm-hmm. It's delivering on those returns. Uh, and so, you know, where the sort of world that we will have in 30 years will be determined by where the capital goes in the next five. Um, you know, if it goes to renewables instead of coal, if it goes to sustainable agriculture versus unsustainable agriculture. Uh, and, you know, not only uh, you know, impact investments in things like agriculture are financially uh, robust, they're lower risk mm-hmm. uh, when done responsibly. I don't think the evidence is quite there yet that more biodiversity on a farm increases annual profit. But I think the evidence is very clear that biodiversity, you know, nature on farms reduces risk. If you have a drought, if you have some other event and you've got those natural systems in place, typically the effects on your business mm. from those events are much shallower mm. if you have a healthy environment. Right. Uh, and so it just depends on the risk profile that you're looking at. Okay, one, one final question on um, the impact investment side then. Um, when, you know, when you or I, people, people who are involved in one way or another in the impact investment market, talk about the fact that you can deliver an out-market return as well as doing good things. Um, which is a technical term, by the way, uh, that it's too good to be true. That if you're delivering that financial return, you can't really be doing good things, in this case, in the environment. So how, you must have thought, thought about that and given it some consideration. How do you respond to that kind of thinking? Um, yeah, it's interesting that the, the, the old adage, if it sounds too good to be, be true, it probably is. Yeah. Um, I don't know, it's a difficult one, and, and it's, there's so, I think one of the challenges is the unfamiliarity of the asset. Now we talk about you know, a $30 billion pipeline for conservation impact investments. Sounds like a lot, but when you put that against $250 trillion worth of investable assets globally, it's, mm. a, it's, it's very small. 
Um, and I think that, you know, response, well, you can't really be doing both, um, is a function of there just not being enough projects in uh, the market that are demonstrating that you to can. To prove it. Yeah. To prove it. Yeah. And that's why we want to we wanted do these transactions like the Water Fund and the Great Kumbang on the ground, real transactions, real investors, mm. to demonstrate that these things can be done mm. uh, rather than talking about impact investing theoretically and talking about, you know, what a great idea it is. Yeah. Let's just get out there and originate and close the deals yep. and prove it. And it'll come down to the ability to uh, articulate the impact and measure report on that impact in a meaningful way as well yeah. which was almost takes me back in my mind to what you said about the philanthropy conversation which is just so important to be able to have that tangible measurable impact yes it's the same with impact investment we, we can Absolutely. quantify the dollars really easily that that's never been a problem but um, it's going to be about how well we can and, and how credibly we can tell our story on the impact side, isn't it? I think that's absolutely right. Uh, the financial returns are almost a threshold issue. Mm. If it's not the right asset allocation in the portfolio that's contributing to a, you know, overall CPI plus four mm. target, whatever it is, then the, the investment's not going to be considered. Mm-hmm. So then, once uh, that barrier is is you know uh, overcome then you're right, it really is about what is the impact I'm having with this allocation of capital. And, you know, every investment is an impact investment of some sort, ranging from very negative impact to very positive. Yeah. We're trying to move it much further up to that positive end. Yeah, couldn't agree more. Um, okay, so finish off, um, we've, we've talked about some of the technical aspects and tactical and strategic aspects of raising money and impact investment and the environment. Um, but just in basic terms... What's all this resulting? You know, what what's this actually done for the environment for for our community? I think three things I'd say there. One is the protection of the Great Kumbang, which is a really important place. Uh, you know, that's just going to be fantastic now that that will will never be developed for an enterprise that shouldn't be developed there. So that that's now secure. Secondly, there's another great environmental outcome that's possible is the reconnection for the first time in half a century of the Lachlan and the Murrumbidgee rivers. They only connect now in the biggest of big floods. Mm. But with some engineering that we can do on the property to remove some of the banks and levees that were put in over many years, we can start to reconnect uh, the Lachlan and the Murrumbidgee. You get all the fish moving through those places. Uh, and thirdly, it is um, you know, this demonstration, not only the impact investments you know, are real and can deliver financial uh, returns and environmental returns, uh, but that agriculture and nature can thrive together. Uh, and you know, not everyone is going to have you know, $55 million of philanthropy, this project is showing that you don't need that either. You know, if you can, you know, target your investments well, you can have a really big impact with little or no philanthropy. Mm. Terrific. Well, congratulations on what you've done, what you've pulled off there. That's, um, personally, it's a feather in your cap, isn't it? But it's a very, very important, significant thing for Australia and beyond. So um, congratulations to you and all all of your colleagues and everybody else that that was involved, um, funders as well. Uh, and investors so thank you for your time today and thanks um, David uh, much appreciate it's great uh, pleasure yeah cheers cheers that's it for this episode of How I Did It for more from Coda visit codacapital.com or email philanthropy at codacapital.com